Hey, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, and when I'm not out riding or running, I am probably inside writing about it. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach, and you are here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we talk to all different types of movement enthusiasts, and, and we learn about the movements that we do, and we try and pull that back into our own daily movement routines. Ooh, movement enthusiasts. Movement I like that. Movement enthusiasts. That's, that's a new I, one. That's like, I guess that would just, that's what I am. So hopefully that's what everyone else is and aspiring to be. Uh, Molly, what have you been up to in work and in and in your movement? Yeah, I mean, work-wise, my How to Be Outside speaker series in Collingwood, Ontario is really coming together. So that's April 18th. And basically, if you like this podcast, picture like a night of 12 of the coolest, basically consummate athletes that you can imagine you know, coming and doing short speeches, think like 10 minutes about topics that they're really passionate about. Um, and, you know, all of the local um, clubs, not, clubs nonprofits, um, other like active groups and stuff are going to be out and, you know, kind of have like a social element around it as well. So, yeah, if you're looking for something to do in this weird shoulder season of, you know, it's not quite the cycling and running season yet, but you're kind of itching to get out and you know, maybe make a new friend, make some new connections, or just get really psyched for the season. That's super. Um, if you're, yeah, in the GTA, definitely check it out. You can find all the info. We'll link it in the show notes, but also theoutdooredit.com slash speaker hyphen series. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's going to be really fun. And Shred Girls 2, Allie's Rocky Ride is available for pre-order now. And I'm really excited about that. Uh, the cover looks fantastic. The illustrations are amazing violet lemay is the coolest illustrator and you know for those of you who don't know uh, shred girls is my middle grade fiction series about girls who you know meet each other and find cycling but then also you know are navigating friendship and growing up and sort of all of the you know insecurities that go with those preteen years that i remember very vividly right so people can get their their copy pre-ordered and yeah, it's super helpful if you pre-order. Like, yeah. I can't stress that enough. So thank you to everyone a lot who of, has. A lot of girls have got turned on, the girls and boys really, have got turned on to reading and or to bikes. So exactly. pick which way you're trying to pull <laughs> things or need, things need to be pulled. Both are, are good practices for life. Yeah, so that's that's what I've been up to. A lot of uh, work for stuff that's coming in the next couple of months and trying to keep my head above water. Okay. How I'm about you? Making a lot of plans for the, the dirty Kansas and the early gravel grinders and... Uh, uh, Leadville and that sort of thing. A lot of steamboat stuff too this year. So steamboat seems huge this yeah, year. Yeah, I don't know if that's like the next Leadville or what it is. It's sort of at altitude too, I guess. Uh, I mean, steamboat. I have to say, is like one of the most beautiful places in the world. I was there um, at the Moots. Yeah, factory. that's where Moots is yeah. it, or was at least. Yeah, yeah, a few years back. I don't know if it's still there. I guess it is. It's really cool. Like they have this cool little hot spring thing in town, and hmm. it's just a really neat little place. Yeah, um, kind of so, nestled right in the mountains. So if you can get there, like it's one of the places where I would actually love to go race because I love the area so much. So it's not necessarily like that. It's just about the race, although the race sounds amazing. It's also like this is a really cool place to visit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hashtag not an ad, by the way. <laughs> For Steamboat? Yeah. Yeah, like sponsored by the Steamboat Board of Tourism. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So making a bunch of my custom plans and then doing a bunch of pre-made plans up for those too. So wherever if people are just looking for ideas, the pre-made plans are live on the Training Peak store. Yeah. I don't know what else is up. I've been doing a lot of kettlebell work, but enjoying that. We got a kettlebell here. We're at uh, training camp still. Uh, so we're sort of abroad, but just you know apartment hotel room type thing and yeah i've been having a good run of sort of morning kettlebell routine rotating through three little mini routines so i admit day. i'm actually pretty jealous of this because i like i was the one who really pushed for getting the kettlebell when we got here and like farmers carried it for 2k to get it to the house and it's a 35 pound kettlebell and that's like pretty much the last time i picked it up um, because I, I realized like i know my limits and at the moment adding strength training even with just 35 pounds is just not what my body like needs and can handle with the amount of load I'm doing with riding and running. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a good idea in principle and I'm glad you're getting some work out of it, but yeah, it's been really good. The just sort of rotating through that three day routine and nothing's, you know, it's sort of maybe 10 to 20 minutes total of, of work, but sort of been doing that now for over a month for sure. So 
Yeah. Well, I've been doing my morning strength routine for five years. So there. Well, I guess there you go. That's one up, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, um, so today we have on my friend Gemma Sampson, who is actually based in Girona. We met this you know, season when we were here. Uh, she's a dietitian originally from Australia, and she is fantastic. She's in the middle of studying, or she's about to get her PhD and doing a lot of studying with carbs and endurance athletes. Um, and actually, particularly the knowledge that athletes have about carbs and how they work and, you know, what the general guidelines are as far as like how much you need and stuff. And part of what she was doing for her um, like big thesis project is a survey of athletes kind of all levels uh, with a bit of, you know, how you use carbs and what you know about them. And I've had a lot of people like run through the survey because I've, I, you know, was trying to help her put it out. And it was really funny listening to everyone be like, wow, I knew a lot less than I thought I did about how carbohydrate worked in the body. Right. Um, and yeah, sure. You don't really need to know how the car's engine works to drive. But I think when you're in endurance sport, it really helps to understand like exactly why you're eating carbohydrate and like what exactly it's doing for you. Well, I guess the trouble with that is uh, we don't have to pick the mix of, you know, gas to oil to air type thing. Like your car does all that for you. Yeah. I can't take myself to a garage and just. Yeah. Like it used to be that you or like on a smaller engine, a small engine, you'd, you'd mix like oil in with that and you could like change things so that the amount of air coming in would maybe be a, a, an analogy for that. And probably a lot of people, I can see your eyes are bl- glazing over. Yeah, with, I have no idea. What I mean, it was a horrible that. explanation of it. anyone understands small engines, but. Anyway, uh, so Gemma's on to kind of talk through, you know, a lot of stuff about carbohydrates, but then also I had put out uh, when we recorded this a while, a while ago now, it's been a few weeks, but I'd put out a call for questions about nutrition. And there were a lot of really varied ones. Um, you know, from how to get your high performing or high performance kid to eat better um, for for parents and, you know, how to fuel when you're doing shift work and working overnight and having, you know, weird pockets of the day where you're hungry when it's, you know, not really a normal time to eat. Um, and just a bunch of other really cool questions. We talk about fasted state training and elimination diets and sort of all of these things that are really trendy right now and kind of talk through, you know, how we can look at them, but also like, okay, but let's take a step back and see if you're already doing the basic nutrition stuff right. And then mm-hmm. we can maybe talk about these other things. Yeah, which is always the the struggle, right? Is that 90% or 80% or 99% uh, if you're going for 1% gains, but the, you know, so many of us either did it really well, got really good and then abandoned it all and, and throw it all away. Or we aren't doing the, you know, the big rocks. It's Dr. Bob's often says, uh, who we've had on the podcast, he said, often talks about like, there's these big fundamental things that, you know, most of us just need to get those right and we'll be doing pretty well, right? The little pebbles we don't need right off the bat. You know, this is the analogy of filling like a glass jar with, you know, if you started with, how does this work? You If you... You don't want to start with just the little pebbles or else it won't all fit in the glass. Right. You've got to put your big rock in first, then the pebbles, then the sand, then the water. Yeah. So you're sort of like, you know, your fruits, vegetables, protein, and, you know, eat whole meals, you know, don't be stressed out, get a good sleep. You know, there's sort of these big rocks, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, again, we get into this minutia that the news studies cover or the, the latest Instagram athlete is, is doing, right. And we forget that, you know, those fundamentals actually are boring, but do take you you know, a lot of the way. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's let Gemma get into it. Uh, Enjoy this podcast with Gemma. Here with Gemma Sampson. Gemma, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I love this fireside chat that we have set up. I mean, people can't see it, but I hope they can feel the like warmth in our voices. Yeah, it's nice. (laughs) It's nice and cozy. Cup of tea, cup of coffee and a fire. Nothing better. So, Give me like the short story. How did you end up here in Girona, like hub of all things cycling, triathlon related, working as a dietitian? Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm Australian originally, but I grew up in Zambia. I lived in England for eight years and was always looking for a way to get back to Australia or somewhere warmer and randomly came to Girona on a cycling trip with a mate and instantly knew that I was meant to move here. So I did and everyone told me that I was a little bit crazy. Um, but I was like, well, I'm a dietitian. I work with athletes. There's a lot of athletes here in Girona. There's no sports dietitian. So what have I got to lose? Give it a go. And what, two and a half years later? <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So still here. So I haven't left yet. Um, and I'm very happy here. The, uh, 
it's a little bit cold for my liking at the moment, but for training, um, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're and you're training right now. So give kind of your brief athletic history because you don't get into sports dietitian stuff unless you really, really love sports. No, for sure. Um, so I was a swimmer when I was younger. Um, so I swam competitively in Zambia, and but when I moved back to Australia, I never really took up a sport competitively until oh, probably about oh, five or six years ago. And I'd been talking about doing a triathlon for years and years and years, and someone was like, well, what's stopping you? I was like, uh, good point. So I signed up for a sprint, loved that. So then I did a half, an Olympic, then a half, and then a full Ironman. Um, you know, the totally normal progression. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm competitive, so I like just competing against myself and other people and in the process of that really discovered that I love cycling and I love time trialing but I love cycling and so um, but yeah that was a good few years ago that I did my Ironman and then I went straight into an overtraining study as a research participant which kind of nearly killed me and um, so wait, wait, wait. they made you overtrain in this study yeah it was a 10-week winter training study um so it like I, I kind of knew that it was meant to be overtraining, um but I didn't I didn't really grasp just how impactful it was going to be um so I think I finished I mean I was flying but I finished the training uh had a day off flew back to Australia and then I was sick for weeks and weeks and pretty much just didn't leave the couch didn't ride a bike for maybe about six months afterwards um so it kind of really destroyed my passion at the time to a point where I was a bit worried that I would actually never ride again. Um, uh, but it seems like you're back in business. You have a big goal this summer, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, I am currently training for the Trans Pyrenees, uh, which is a self-supported ultra cycling race from Yansa in this side of Spain to San Sebastian on the other side. So it's about thousand kilometers and 25,000 meters of climbing so did yeah. not realize how long it was when you first told me about it yeah yeah <laughs> yes it just, just I mean it's only a couple of days of riding yeah like it's easy no worries <laughs> so I'm actually doing my first bikepacking trip this weekend I've never actually I've never actually done a bikepacking trip um so this will be my first time this weekend so yeah come back to me next week to see how I've gone yeah okay so wait self-supported means like you're gonna it's basically a bikepacking race yeah yeah pretty much do so you have to you can't book anything in advance you can't get support from other people you have to either buy it on the go get it on the go or find it on the go or fix it on the go so could you stay in a hotel if you found yes one? yeah you can do that because but you can only book it while you're going you can't oh, okay you, you couldn't like book book the hotel like now for six months later you've just got to be able to find it on the go Yikes. Or sleep on the bush on the side of the road. Okay. Do you have a plan for that yet? Are you going to no. hotel it? or? Uh, no, <laughs> I haven't quite decided yet. So I think that'll come with time as I sort of do a few more bikepacking trips, do some overnight night training because it starts at night as well. It starts at 9 p.m. the race. So you start in the dark. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm not signing up for this anytime soon. <laughs> I like a crazy endurance event, but this seems a little nuts. Um, okay. So you're also, at the same time, you're training for this really large event working on a very large academic program you're going for your phd and you're in the middle of researching athletes and carbohydrates so can you kind of just ex give me like the overview of what your project consists of yeah definitely so yeah i'm, I'm in the just about in the write-up phase now so final end stretch with my phd and essentially what i'm looking at is what endurance athletes know about carbohydrates for performance what they know what they do and then the factors that influence differences between what i as a practitioner would be recommending and what someone is doing because um carbohydrates are very valuable for endurance performance and um, that's been known for a very long time and there's some guidelines that have been out there for almost 10 years but then when we look in practice as to what athletes are doing amateur and elite they are often under consuming which can then have a massive impact in how well they do so for example I was just reading a study the other day about uh, marathon runners and the, there was a group that just did their own thing and there was a group that had a plan that, uh, which involved trainings with a specific amount of carbohydrate and then testing it and then using it in the race. They were 11 minutes faster in their marathon, which I think was in Copenhagen, and 11 minutes faster, which is about 6% improvement. And the only difference was that they had a plan versus they didn't have a plan. Oh, so so the people without the plan still ate and stuff, but just didn't yeah, yeah, have yeah, like still any... Yeah, but it was about a difference of about 100 grams extra carbs that were consumed in that race oh, wow. when they had a plan and they had practiced it as well. That's amazing. And I have to say, like, I took your, your carb quiz, I'm going to call it, and 
you know, honestly, as I read through it, I was like, I, I don't know some of this stuff. And like, I've taken courses on sports nutrition. I've written a book on sports nutrition. I'm going to say part of it was grams versus calories. Yeah. I do understand calories a little better, but yeah, as I finished it, and I think we talked about this before, like you realize very quickly that you don't actually have that much knowledge as an athlete. Um, yeah. And actually that was really one of the interesting things that we found with the questionnaire. And, and it's not a case that we expect people to get a hundred percent from it. What the whole point of that questionnaire and designing it was to be able to have a really quick way to gauge what someone does or doesn't know about carbohydrates, either like how they work what and why they're valuable and uh, for carbohydrate loading or the pre-race meal or during or afterwards for recovery and so the questions are tailored specifically to those different those different areas of 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 nutrition in in a performance setting and it's not a case that you should always be high carbs or always be low it's just being strategic to that scenario and so when but one of the interesting things we found with the questionnaire is that um, it often it's it's made people realize their own gaps and so because a lot of people come oh yeah I know everything but then they like start answering questions like oh maybe I don't know so much and which then inspires people to learn more which is great because ultimately that's what I want people to be doing is to learn how to fuel themselves better and then get better results whether they're an amateur a beginner or whether they're like they're like a complete pro yeah I was actually laughing today um I have a friend who's a biochemist and a pro racer and she took it and tweeted about it she's like totally nailed it and like dot 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 I think Maybe. <laughs> so I'm very excited to hear what her results ended up actually being. Um, have you seen any like patterns kind of emerging? Is there like a part where people are tending to get the answers wrong? Uh, I haven't seen patterns yet in terms of specific types of questions, but what we did, we have seen trends in uh, like experience. So uh, we have, I haven't seen. Um, a difference between different sports so particularly this is in cycling triathlon or running but what we have seen is that there's been a difference in knowledge between people who have worked with a nutritionist before or worked with a dietitian before so which you would expect um, but then we've also seen a difference in um, when people have um, been racing for longer or been training for longer which again you would expect and then because my further studies outside of just the questionnaire have been looking in practice of what people have been or athletes have been doing in an actual event and so I've been interviewing athletes and so I've had about 50 um, who I've then had them recording what they've done in a race and then doing the questionnaire because we had to do it after because we didn't want them to change what they did in the race and then and then we've interviewed them to see is there things going on in the race because is it that athletes don't know what to do is it that they don't know how to put it into practice because like you're saying about calories versus grams um and I have seen a difference in like say maybe American and Canadian athletes versus say athletes from Australia or from Europe I mean and that can be down to how people are trained and taught and um so some of those little differences but I'm only just now starting well I'm in the process of about to, to analyze but I'm still trying to get an extra couple hundred athletes to sort of fill the questionnaire so I'm up to about 800 at the moment and I'm trying to get to a thousand. Oh I love it okay so I also have to ask how are you balancing doing all of this with your training and your you know regular job as a dietitian? Uh, it comes in waves. Um, so at the moment, I feel like I've got a bit of a better handle on balance on things. Um, if you'd asked me this in December, um, we probably wouldn't have been having this conversation because, <laughs> or I would have been, I probably wasn't sleeping very much. Um, so it, I think I do have a tendency to have these big, intense blocks of craziness and then just drop everything else around me so um yeah we'll, we'll talk about how the i'm well aware of what happens when life gets crazy and you just everything else sort of just falls out of whack um but yeah at the moment uh things yeah i think i think the balance is okay at the moment but like i sort of i have set hours where i try to work with my clients and i set hours where i find i'm doing my best work for my research and so i focus on that then and the training sort of tries to fit in between those on certain times and certain days so for me the afternoon um between two like one o'clock and two o'clock three o'clock is i'm my brain function drops dramatically so I just go and do my, that's when I train or I go home and have a nap. <laughs> and so, or I socialize or see my friends and try to catch up with them then because otherwise I just, yeah, I'm, I'm just staring at the computer and nothing happens. I've been super big on the 20 minute, like 1 p.m. nap lately. Yeah. <laughs> it's been the greatest thing ever. Um, okay, so let's, let's get like into carbs. Pre-workout, pre-race carbs. What do people need to know? What's, what are the general rules? Like, yeah. 
So in terms of like general rules, like especially if it's like uh, an endurance or a longer like race, it could be a marathon, a half marathon, anything longer than about 90 minutes, then you there is a value from carb loading the day before. So ideally you'd want to get about 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram. So if, if a 60 kilogram athlete, that might be about 60 grams across the entire day. Uh, but then the thing is you need to test this out in practice and, and, and test it in a training day, a training session, or in like an easy, like a, a, like a, an, one of your, not so important races just to see physically how does that make you feel because um the how you've spread that out throughout the day that can have an impact on it um so that's what i'd be recommending the day before and we do see differences in how athletes perform based on how much they've had the day before so ideally at least seven grams and on average most people will eat about four grams per kilo per day so roughly two to three hundred grams a day so it sometimes it could be doubling the amount of carbs and so practically usually this means a bit less fiber a little bit less a little bit less veg um which I sometimes see people trying to be too healthy on that day before. Yes, I, my coach actually said to me like the week before an ultra, like start tapering off vegetables like early in the week. And I was like, I can't do that. Yeah. That's so hard. Like, yeah. And it doesn't have to mean like cut them out completely, but just have a little bit less because you might have to increase the volume of what you're eating. And that just physically can be challenging for a lot of people. And that's where like having liquid carbs or like things like juices can be really useful just to get a bit of extra carbohydrate in, but without having to double your volume of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then like race morning, I think, you know, one of the mistakes people make is kind of going overboard on the pre-race breakfast, I'm going to say. Yep, exactly. Any thoughts on, like, what serving size we should be looking at? Yeah, so um, generally for amounts, like, you want to aim for at least one gram of um, carbs per kilo. So um, it would probably be, like, anywhere between 60 to 100 grams of carbohydrate in a meal. And that could be oats, it could be porridge, it could be muesli. I think the thing is stick with what you normally would have and what suits you so some people oats is great other people um they like rice which is which is great so i think again it comes down to practice it in your training and test that out and um and sometimes i see people struggling with breakfast um because they've had this massive dinner the night before and so that's where the day before i'd be like okay have a bigger lunch but have a normal size dinner and maybe an extra little snack before you go to bed but you don't want to be going to bed feeling super stuffed because Mm -hmm. that can then affect how you feel in the morning and if you're waking up feeling super full you're not going to then eat your breakfast which then might mean you are then a few hours before you're actually getting some nutrition in again yeah and not the happiest person on the start line between feeling both like bloated and also hungry by then <laughs> yeah 100 percent. and I think one of the the things I've learned so much from especially having these conversations with athletes that um, athletes that are performing really well are the ones that are recording what they've tried and if they're, they're testing different things out and but only changing like one or two things at a time not changing like 50 things um, but just making one or two small adjustments and then going back reviewing it and then trialing again and then testing it and so it's I think that's where I see the differences in athletes who are say on the podium versus some that are not and ones who are more experienced is that they're using themselves as their guinea pig because that's the thing with these guidelines they're they're a guideline but they're not like a hard and fast rule so I've spoken to people who can have like 120 grams an hour for like 10 hours, which for me sounds massive. Um, But then there's other athletes that 50 grams an hour is their max. And there's no necessarily like right or wrong with that. It's just that when you know what suits you and um, and you've tested it in practice, it gives you the confidence to, to be, know that you're able to perform optimally when you get to your event. Yeah, no, I love that. And so one thing that kind of always gets me, and I run into this with talking to parents a lot of the time, is everyone kind of gets this like good food and bad food dichotomy in their mind where it's like uh, oats, good, baguette, bad. Um, But race day, like I, so my personal thing is like bagels. Bagels work for me race morning. That's that's what I've always had. It will always work. and for some reason, people are appalled when I say bagels. Yeah. Like, they're just like, 
you can't have it. The bagels aren't good for you. Yeah. yeah, no, I see people talking about food being good or bad all the time. And and for me, as far as I'm concerned, like food, I mean, th- food isn't moral. It's morally neutral. It's not, It's <laughs> unless it's actually poison or it's physically off and it's going to make you ill from eating it. Like um, I, I do get frustrated from people talking about food being good or bad um, because it's, it's almost like instilling shame onto people for their eating habits. And there's so much... Um, stigma around food and there's there's a lot of often in sport there is a lot of like weight food issues anyway and underlying eating disorders or eating um, disordered patterns and things and so that doesn't help um so uh the thing is like there is nothing wrong with eating bread there's nothing wrong with eating bagels there's nothing wrong and and it's and it's it's a case of what suits you best what what and like you say like if you've used it for years and years then like awesome like and then you might you might try something else you might be like okay i'm gonna try rice next time and you're just like, no, nah, that doesn't work. Um, it's got to, like, food has to suit you. It has to be, I mean, it should be enjoyable. You should still be enjoying what you're eating. But, um, yeah, you need to know what works for you. <laughs> yes, I love it. Um, and then in race, there's a lot that's been said in the past few years around gels and bars and all of these things. And gels, I feel like, come up the most as, like, they're great. They're terrible. They're great. They're terrible. Where do you fall? Yeah, I think again, this is where it comes down to the individual, totally. the individual athlete, and also the context. Because for some some people, gels are awesome. Other people, gels are like a like a one one way ticket to the Portaloos kind of thing. So, um, <laughs> it's um, it's. It, it, this is where it's like you've got to test out your nutrition products and I do see people turning up at races and events that might be the first Ironman first first triathlon first marathon and they're like oh goodie bag gels oh dear god oh. yeah and and they're <laughs> testing and they're, they're, they're trying something in an unfamiliar situation and I think personally I see more of the issues with gels come and I think this is more from like the sweeteners and the the flavors that trigger people. So there's certain brands of gels that I know for me, if I have more than one, then I'm, my stomach is gurgling. I'm like feeling like I'm, I need to get the toilet straight away. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there's other ones which don't necessarily have as much um, additives in them and they're fine. And this is where the types of looking at what types of sugars are in those gels as well, because some sugars are processed rapidly. Some of them take uh, slower to so glucose is a bit faster where uh, fructose is a bit slower to digest and so if there's the, the ratio is a bit out for you then it's just going to sit there and it could be just causing gastro problems and so and you do see different sports having different types of gastro issues um, so running tends to have more than more issues than say like cycling does uh, but this is where the intensity can come into play because where as the intensity goes up your body becomes more reliant on carbohydrates and sugars and it needs it faster so where cycling perhaps for example or like even like ultra running you're going at a much slower pace Um, you're not necessarily going full gas and so you have the capacity to eat solid food and and absorb it where if you're then like sprinting up a mountain or um, like trying to catch someone's wheel before they disappear or you're you're trying to ensure that that person behind you doesn't catch up in a race then that's where if you're trying to, I mean, physically trying to chew something, you might not be able to breathe. So that that can be that can be a challenge. <laughs> have totally had that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all have. And yeah. um, but that's where like the drinks and the gels. So, in terms of actually what makes an ideal race nutrition food, it's 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 so individual because, and that's where you have to try things out. Because I have my preferences. I have brands that I personally like. Um, but then. I also know brands that, like athletes that I work with, like they just work for them. And so but it doesn't work for me. And so everyone is different. And so where how that looks in practice is going to be completely d- dependent on your actual events, your training and your speed. Because uh, say like an Ironman, for example, there's a big difference for, from an Ironman, someone that's finishing in eight hours versus someone that's finishing in 15 hours. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it changes over time too, right? Like what worked for me 
12 years ago is not what works for me now. And even from sport to sport, like, yeah, yeah for running, I have a totally different eating habit than I do for cycling. Exactly. And, and I see that often with athletes that are moving from one sport to another sport. And, and yeah, so they may have like, they know sport on what worked for them when they were a runner, but then they're a triathlete now. And, and they're like, oh, it's just like, I'm starting again from scratch to find out what suits me in this situation. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And then, um, Okay, what's the next? Okay, next thing is dialing nutrition. Someone asked for a 10 plus hour event in terms of their electrolyte and carb needs. And I mean, 10 hours is a really long time to be out there. It's it's Ironman, it's any kind of like ultra run, it's your bike thing coming up. So how can someone prep for that? Because they're not doing a 10 hour training day usually. Yeah, I mean, you might not be doing a 10 hour training day, but for that, you probably would, I would expect you'd be doing at least four to six hours, or at least at least once as like a testing scenario. Um, and was this sort of like in a running context or a cycling context or Ironman? I think cycling, like a gravel event type situation. Yeah, okay. And so again, this is also where it, it's specific to different sports. So say like gravel, um, there's often a lot more um, technical um, situations involved and so um, versus like a road race on cycling. So. Uh, where in gravel races or mountain bike races often it's like um, there's less opportunities to take your hands off the wheel sometimes people have camelbacks on their back so often having um, electrolytes and um, carbs in their in their camelbacks or drink bottles using so the sport can sometimes dictate what types of foods are are suitable because they may not be able to open a bar and chew a bar but they might be using a combination of both. So, I mean, with that sort of distance, you're not going to be going full gas, but I would ex- be expecting for, from a carbohydrates perspective, you to be consuming really in the sort of 40 to 50, 60 grams an hour range, because you're probably also going to have some sort of fats in there as well, especially right. if, you, if you're using um, solid, if you're using some solid food. So that's where like maybe like cliff bars or energy bars or flapjacks or, but even, even things like you can make a wrap with like peanut butter and banana and honey and stuff in there as well it doesn't have to be like a a a commercial food product that you're getting your energy from Mm -hmm. yeah I think to me the most important thing for like practicing for those events is really practicing eating on the move because I so many people and I'm totally guilty of this like don't eat in training or they eat in training but only when they're like stopped but it's mm-hmm. like, but you're not going to stop at a race. Exactly. <laughs> and I've I seen this with um, in cycling, um, in elite cycling, in, say, the classics. Um, so the classics, it's because they're, they're just intense and they're crazy. But um, often the opportunity to, like, you, you can't stop. But um, but the it's just really crazy, intense sort of situation. And so if, if you don't, if you're not used to or habitually eating in a training training ride, and you're often doing these long three, four, five hour rides, and then you go into a race and you forget to eat, you can empty the tank within mm-hmm. like a couple hours in and then and then you're just playing catch up you, you can't play catch up you just got to keep constantly sort of surviving and um and in those races you do see like half half the peloton almost like sort of like trailing in at the end <laughs> versus where with um the the stage races for example in cycling they're the, it's generally a bit closer together there's not as many people like just empty at the end of the race because yeah. there's more opportunities to eat in that situation um but yeah I do see um with athletes if they're not eating in their training that when it comes to their races they forget because they're not they're not used to it so I'm always reminding athletes to it could be like putting an alert on your garment on your watch that beeps at certain distances or times just to get in the habit of having a drink or because and the same for like hydration because it might be that you just never drink because you don't get thirsty and so just because you're not thirsty doesn't mean that you may not you, you might be still needing fluids and so yeah some people with with hydration like some people they can drink to thirst and that's good um where other people they might take their drink bottle around for four hours and not drink from it and so yep that would be me <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I used to have a friend that would actually act as my Garmin alert every five minutes. Oh, no, drink, drink, That's drink. Handy. It was very I, handy. I mean, I have a tendency to put my friends to be like, oh, eat this, eat this, eat this. <laughs> Just always have snacks on hand yeah. for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be really popular in the race yeah. this summer. Although, oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not giving anyone that. I'm not giving anyone a <laughs> freedom in my event, no. <laughs> awesome. Okay, let's talk post-workout, post-race. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is the window? How long do we have before we need to start 
refueling and what should we be refueling with? Again, it depends. I know, I know. <laughs> People are like, oh, just give me a clear answer. But I think it, it does depend because it, if it's, there's a different big difference between someone that's training two, three times a day, um, so which is usually the case with triathletes versus um, say like a cyclist that might be training once a day versus um, uh, like a lot of amateurs that might only be training like like three, four times a week. And so the the time that you have between your training sessions and eating is going to influence uh, like just how valuable that window is. So yeah, optimally within 30 minutes um, of finishing a training session for optimal recovery, rapid like replacement of glycogen and also for protein for refueling your muscles, that's optimal within 30 minutes um, because your body is just more... Um, uh, absorbed not absorptive but I'm trying to think of the word um it, it takes in everything that you give it it takes it in at a, a much higher level um versus if you leave it for a couple of hours but right. if you just have a normal diet like for glycogen for example you can generally get your glycogen levels back up to normal within 24 hours so if you're not like training again for another day or two like it's not as critical where if someone's training again in two three hours that's when getting food in like as soon as they finish that session is really valuable because if you've done a really hard session first thing in the morning and then you're going to be training again at lunchtime and you've then taken an hour or two to, before you've eaten a meal or take had um, some sort of food then when you get to your second session you're going to be a little bit lower a bit depleted and then by the third session of the day you're just going to be on empty and there can be value there is value from intentionally training low carb and low glycogen availability at times but you don't want to do it all the time because if you're doing it too much then that could be affecting the quality of your training and so that's where having I guess a plan in place for your training is important to sort of be thinking okay what's the goal of this session how do I want to fuel before during after and 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 why and being prepared so that you've actually got the food ready to go so um, it might be that you've got yeah it might be a smoothie it might be um, some like a bowl of porridge that or like some overnight oats that you've got ready to go so you can just sort of quickly eat them on the way to work after a training session or it might and then and then you have another meal when you get to work for example like it depends so um because everyone's training is so different trying to give those clear this is what everyone should do is is a challenge yeah trying to write that book was not the easiest thing I've ever done and I think yeah I started every chapter with it depends so Yeah. yeah same boat here um and you you mentioned having a plan I feel like that's really the most important thing out of all of this is just not you know, not getting back to the house, starving and not having any clue and like shoving your head in the fridge and eating everything in sight. Yeah. Or, you know, going straight to work with your stomach growling and you don't have any food on hand. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And and sometimes I think that can come about from not eating enough in the training. And I see, I see that a lot where, um, especially if people are trying to get leaner or trying to lose a bit of weight. Um, and I, I totally get like, logically, it sounds like it makes logical sense. Like, oh, if I eat less, I'll burn more calories, I'll lose more weight. But the problem is that generally you empty the tank and then when you're that empty your your self-resolve is low your um, willpower is low and so that's when you're more susceptible to the cookie jar or like whatever biscuit tin is at work and or like the, then you start craving especially if you're low glycogen your body then starts craving to get food in to start like replacing yourself and so I do see people often snacking and eating a lot more outside of training than they would have eaten in it because when you're exercising there's kind of a physical there's a cap physically as to how much you can eat and it's almost always a lot less than you've actually burned where when you've stopped exercising you can eat you could eat an entire day's worth of energy in one meal easily and still be hungry afterwards depending on what it is so (laughs) I think that's probably the biggest thing I see people the biggest mistake I see people doing is that they're not eating enough in their training sessions and then overcompensating afterwards um, by overeating foods afterwards when they're not needing. And on paper, it might look like the calories are, are right, but it's just the timing is out. And so it's just fixing that timing so that the, the shift is closer to when they're training and um, getting more of the fuel in training so that they're then not so hungry and just like snacking and nibbling and mindlessly eating afterwards. Yeah. So this brings us to my very excited to- topic here, fasted state training. Yeah. It's, it's trendy again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should we do it? How do we do it? Again, it, oh, it depends. Um, it, <laughs> there is, yeah, there is, there is value in fasted training. Um, it, it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't suit everybody. Um, so it's something often, if you've never done it before, I would say trial it in, on a trainer, indo- indoors, um, 
and I've done fasted sessions, I've done glycogen depletion sessions. And if you glycogen depleted yourself properly, then you're dizzy, you're just like, I mean, everyone that's bonked or hit like hunger flattered, like they know how you feel, like you're cranky, you feel like you're gonna cry. Like that's what happens when you get low glycogen. And the the challenge with fasted sessions is that sometimes people are usually going too hard and they're going too hard and they get into that state. And so the value of a, a fasted session Usually people think, oh, if I do this, I'm going to lose weight and I'm burning fat, the fat that they can sort of like grab. It's not really (laughs) using, it's it's more using the fats in your muscles. And so, but you're actually burning a lot less energy in that situation than you would if you were doing, say, like a higher intensity effort. So it's from like, if you're looking at calorie perspectives, you would burn more from going, doing a hard training session. But the value of it is that it's improving, it can improve your endurance capacity and it can help um, improve your ability to use fats as a fuel, which for endurance and ultra endurance is really valuable. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to burn more fat as like from your body fat. It can, it can do, but only if you then aren't overcompensating afterwards. Yeah, which I think is definitely the issue, right? If you go out and yeah. you run for 30 minutes in the morning, I guarantee yeah. your breakfast is probably going to be a little bit heftier than it would have Exactly. Been. And, and the thing is, it's just got to be so super slow. So at the moment, I'm mm-hmm. on two-hour fasted rides. And, I mean, my average watts for those is like 140. And for me, when you're starting, you're like, oh, this is easy. I'm not even doing anything. But if I went any harder, say if I did 150, then I'd get home and I'd be like – I'm gonna fall over I'm so dizzy and then you just keep snacking all day but then for me at the moment two hours of that and I can I can walk in the door I'm like perfectly fine have a normal breakfast and then go to work and I can still function afterwards where if and that's the key thing you've just got to it, it is super super light you've got to go super easy and light that's definitely where people I think have the biggest problem especially runners I'm gonna say because it takes a lot of running to get to the point where there is an easy run yeah so yeah running running was never easy for me so like exactly it's not possible i'm in training (laughs) i had to sacrifice so much swimming and running and swimming in cycling time just to be an average rubbish runner yeah i'm sure you're great but i know (laughs) what you mean um (laughs) so i mean i think in that case like to me fasted walking in the morning is probably like the ideal for a runner literally so like when i was working with boxers um so uh, before i started working with cyclists i worked in with boxing and that is a very weight specific sport so like they have to make weight or they don't fight and um and so in it's they use a lot of fasted either jogging but again it's it's jogging it's super or sort of fast walking and and it's generally you want it to be at least 20 30 minutes so yeah again going for like a a walk around the block for like 20 30 minutes in the morning um having like black coffee beforehand and this is where you can have protein before a fasted session so that might be eggs um could be smoked salmon if you like that or some or even uh i know some people use like a whey protein shake which doesn't have carbs in them so a lot of them do Mm -hmm. um and so you can use that um, before a fasted session but if you have any sort of carbohydrate and it could be even if it's like in your milk and your coffee a small amount that will then sort of force your body to use carbohydrate as fuel rather than fat so this is where the, what you eat before a session will then influence what fuel your body uses in that training session right. as well so it's just trying to teach your body that okay yes I know I know that carbs are good for me but I also want right now I just want to use the fats and be more efficient at using that which is important for the long um and we've seen it like a world's last year like um one of the riders com- like spectacularly bonked on the last finishing strap and and you could see it in his face like just gone white as a ghost and he could keep going and he did keep going but then his pace just he was just crawling and yeah. so and that's the thing so using fats as fuel is great for ultra endurance and for um for like yeah like multi-stage multi-day um non- uh, non-stop races where the intensity and the pace is consistent, but a lot, lot lower. But, um, where if you are going fast and hard and you need a lot of energy and effort, then that's where carbs are definitely king. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, next controversial topic, elimination diets. So we're talking like the Whole30, the FODMAPs, like any of these, like we're going to take away like multiple groups of foods that you can eat you know no refined sugar no bread <laughs> no gluten no alcohol no anything fun um, <laughs> and then in the case of FODMAPs like also like a lot of like weird vegetables and stuff are out yeah so I mean so on the whole like on the whole I'm not a huge fan of elimination diets um mm-hmm. so 
more so because what I find is when it it can disturb people's relationships with food and that, like, like we were talking before about the good and ba- and good and bad um, foods that if if something isn't causing you physical harm then it's not it's yeah it's it's not bad. Um, there's clear situations where a food is harmful. So, for example, if someone has celiac disease, then gluten, which is in wheat, barley, rye, and controversial, and to an extent oats as well, um, depending on where they're from or country they're in, um, the gluten is causing physical harm to the body. And so that's where trace amounts have to, all trace amounts have to be eliminated from the diet. So, uh, FODMAPs um, is again a compl- complicated. Um, Diet. So it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, FOD, M, um, monosaccharides and polyols. There we go. I'm um, impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, which basically is all these fancy terms for different carbohydrates. And so they're types of carbohydrates present in foods. And like you said, weird and wonderful vegetables or just, just normal foods. Like yeah. it could be like apples, peaches, watermelons, avocados, um, mushrooms, um, onions, garlic, um, and often foods that have a lot of flavor and bring flavor to food. And so in some people, uh, these carbohydrates aren't absorbed as well in the gut. And so it can cause bloating or um, like constipation or diarrhea or just like stomach digestive problems. And so it's not that these foods are bad. It's just that there's certain types of beans, for example, there's certain foods here that in certain amounts cause symptoms that are unpleasant. And the whole point of the FODMAP diet, and I guess where a lot of people have gone wrong in it, is that they've taken as like eliminate for life. Mm-hmm. And that was never, it's never designed to be that because if you, the more food you eliminate, that has a big impact on your gut health, um, but which then they're discovering more links with your mental health. Um, so on the whole, it's not ideal to eliminate foods long term. And so the whole point of the FODMAP diet is that there is an elimination phase, but it's a phase and it, the whole point is to then, okay, let's take out all the foods that are triggers, um, that are known triggers, and then we're systematically going to test what foods and what and in certain amounts are the problem foods. And it might be, okay, you can tolerate beans are fine for you, but onions and garlics, whoa, hello, like they're just danger zone. And so when you know what those foods are, you can then um, manage the amounts and the frequency that you have them. And it might be that you could have one or two of them a day and that's fine. But then if you have three, like four or five, that's when you start having issues issues and so it was never it's never meant to be this eliminate for life like it's or you can never eat a food that's got garlic or onions in it it's more just like you know what foods trigger you and how much you can manage without causing you trouble yeah yeah no that's that's a good point I think most people yeah forget that elimination diets are only supposed to be a short period like it's a short-term solution 100 it's not a solution it's really just the research phase kind of (laughs) exactly and I think and but the problem is that if if people and a lot of people have, if they've got really bad um, gut symptoms and then all of a sudden they've just miraculously gone, then they're scared to reintroduce them. And I totally, that makes total sense. And this is where it is really, really valuable doing it with a dietitian that is trained in this because um, you could be eliminating foods like we see like people for example dairy so dairy is also a food that can trigger some people um, if they've got IBS or gut issues and if you eliminate that then what are you replacing it with and so and a lot of say like plant-based milk alternatives aren't fortified and so if you've gone from getting calcium from say dairy or milk or something and then you're having a non-fortified alternative then you could be potentially having deficiencies in certain vitamins or minerals which then may have long-term implications so where it's it's learning how what to replace instead and what to put in what to use an, as an alternative and also then reintroducing and having the confidence to reintroduce it um with without having to eliminate stuff for years and years unnecessarily yeah for sure and i think most people i'm my my stance on the elimination diet is most people could really stand to start with the easy things like eliminating you know, a lot of the refined sugar in their diet and maybe like, you know, knock out alcohol for a few weeks. Um, Start with sort of the easy big pillars instead of being like, that's it. I've got to go Whole30. I've got to go FODMAPs. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Like make make small. I mean, I'm a a huge fan of just making small 
changes that you can sustain for long term and that that gets results but i guess and I, we all we all want it we all want the results yesterday we exactly all, but it's it's like okay you want you want a six pack you've got to do your exercises you've got to do the go the gym work you've got to do it like daily for weeks and weeks and weeks before <laughs> you see the results and the same the same with nutrition like you may not see you're not going to see the results tomorrow but you but all those little choices you make today and tomorrow and the next day collectively they all add up to seeing the result in three months time yeah yeah exactly awesome um, next question someone asked was female endurance athlete protein requirements because I mean even I actually was looking into this this week and the variance that I found in just kind of what I could find suggested on very you know different websites and in books and stuff went from like one gram per kilogram of body weight up to like two and a half yeah which is the difference between you know 60 grams of protein a day to like 180 yeah um. so I think like the what the athletes that I'm working with again it, it does come down to the amount of training that you're doing um and usually I would be advising at least one and a half grams per kilogram but again it could go up to two and a half because this is where um depending on what phase of their training and what their goals are at the time so if if someone is wanting to get leaner then we, we might be edging more towards the two to three um, grams per kilo um versus um if someone is just it's more of a, a maintenance and I would very rarely be using less than 1.5 grams more because of if the if they're training if you're training regularly you want the protein to help repair and to build muscle if you need to build muscle but also yeah particularly just for that um, maintenance of what the intensity and the type of training that you're doing um, I find when it's a bit lower than the there may be a bit too much carbs in the diet or too much fat in the diet and so a bit more hungry not as hungry a bit more hungry but this is where with protein also ensuring that you're getting a good distribution throughout the day yes yeah not just like the giant steak at night yeah 100 percent. because i think this is where breakfast in particular in a typical western diet is usually quite low in protein so i mean yes there are um, there is protein in plants and there's like so grains are usually about 10 percent protein so you are you might be getting like 5 10 grams from like say porridge for example but unless you're actively adding something else into that um i do find unless people are sort of using say like eggs or yogurt at breakfast their breakfast meal is usually a bit lacking and so especially if you've trained in the morning um uh, you may not be getting enough protein in there to sort of help with recovery and and generally like a dose more than like 30 to 40 grams as, a, as an actual meal in terms of a dose of protein is what you'd be sort of looking for um, in a main meal and also for more like post-training mm -hmm. okay so that's really hard as it turns out this yeah. is like a really embarrassing thing to admit but since we got here um i didn't realize that the yogurt is all like full fat here it's really hard to find like zero percent greek yogurt and i started like counting up my protein for the day and i was like oh good i had 50 grams of protein today which yeah. is not even one gram per like, yeah. which is really embarrassing to admit as someone who like theoretically knows a lot about nutrition yeah. um so if that's me and i actually thought i was eating a good amount of protein how the heck does the like anyone eat enough protein? Yeah, and I think it's it's probably most people are getting maybe perhaps enough over the over the course of the day. It's not um, because it's not that the protein that you have it's the amino acids that it breaks down to they're going to be in your bloodstream for like the whole duration of the day but it's more just in terms of when you need it and as you need it that's that's when it comes down to the timing so it's if you if you weren't getting enough protein you you would be physically breaking down like you would your muscles would be um getting weaker you'd be losing muscle mass so when so you, you see it in like say starvation diets or it's i guess you see it on like those tv shows where they've got these huge calorie deficits and um they're using a lot of um they're losing a lot of weight often you, they, they're losing fat mass but then underneath they can be losing muscle mass as well unless they're intentionally adding extra protein into so uh, i think that's where there can be a value from uh, at times making a note or tracking of what your food intake is i don't advocate like tracking food all the time um because from multiple reasons um don't really on a whole advocate calorie counting either mm -hmm. but 
like I was saying about the awareness, um, it's just to raise awareness. And so often when I'm working with an athlete, um, I might get them to like record their food and sometimes that food photos, just taking photos of what they're eating throughout the day, um, just to see what are the habitual patterns, but also the thought processes that are going on behind there and the sort of like the intention because are they eating because they're hungry are they eating because they're bored or they're stressed or are they eating because like just give me food now I need sugar and and that's where like so you start seeing patterns after a couple of days of like okay habitually in the afternoon they, they, they're reaching for things and it might be okay well I'm looking at your lunch and you you don't have enough carbs in here or you don't have enough protein in here so let's make a little tweak and adjustment here and see how that affects the next meal because often it's like because of this, this has happened. And so looking right. at the reasonings why. Um, and so with breakfast, that's where, yeah, like you're saying about the being, looking looking at food labels, being aware of what different foods are and what's on those different foods and, and what you can get from different types of foods as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. And I have been eating more protein since I realized that, I nice. will say. Um, that's there- it. And it's not about being perfect either. And I think there is in our culture and and social media especially there's this thing that you've got to be perfect all the time and there's there's times in life where things are not going to be perfect and I mean for me like in December I was doing like 5 a.m to like 11 p.m days and there was a a week where all I had in my fridge was milk lemons and a cabbage and (laughs) I was I was seriously relying on like I was like oh no I need to get food and it was just because I hadn't planned for these crazy weeks and it just happened and then I was like, oh, I have no food. And you just, in and in those moments, and it happens to everyone and it's it's being okay with, like, it, you don't have to, it's not trying about being perfect all the time, it's more about being consistent. So now I've been through that, I can be like, okay, anyone's doing a PhD, if you've got a data collection period, make sure you have food in the house. Like, I hadn't anticipated that week. <laughs> that, I did, that, just, that came completely left field. So um, if I'd had been aware I would have had food in my freezer which I would normally have but I'd eaten it all so um that whole like again having a plan being organized like uh even just using like um food meal deliveries at times or like online shopping like if you can if you're in a place where you can or afford that or getting other people to do your shopping with only I went on a date with my boyfriend to the supermarket uh, because I was like I need food and he wanted to see me and I I wanted to see him too but I also I needed food and this was the only opportunity that I was going to get to the supermarket so I'm like can we go to the and yeah so most people like oh that's that's romantic but I'm like okay well there's times you have to be practical and you have to plan so that you get um that you are able to fuel yourself because i know that when i'm better fueled i can think better I, I work better and i'm performing better and your whole like physical mental emotional health they're all really interlinked and tied together yes exactly oh amazing okay next next audience question here is nutrition for recovering anemic so I mean, this is, I feel like a lot of, a lot of athletes, females in particular, are probably in this boat. Yeah, definitely. So like women's needs for iron is much higher. Um, And again, it it will depend on what your habitual diet is and also the reasons uh, why you are anemic. Um, Because it could be a, yeah, it could be a genetic thing. It could be a a diet related thing. So um, if you are having this prolonged anemia, I'd be then just making sure you're getting tested for celiac disease just in case there's any underlying um, any underlying causes as to why you've got low iron. Um, and then, you, again, looking at your diet, you'll probably, you would need to be taking supplements in this period because it will take a while from diet for it to get back up to normal. Mm-hmm. And in some people, um, they, we do find that they need supplemental iron just to keep their levels high enough anyway even with an an iron enriched diet right so when you're looking at your foods um obviously like um meat products are like steak they're they're generally the highest sources of um of iron it's more bioavailable but if you're vegetarian then you can also get it from particularly in beans um and lentils so like kidney beans for example are a good source having foods with um a vitamin c source so having vegetables with it is helpful for increasing your absorption of the iron in your diet okay but it may also be worth cutting back on tea and coffee because yeah, I know. Um, and also looking at the fiber content. So that's the other thing we say, like a vegan diet, it's very high in fiber typically as if it's well balanced. Um, I do know vegans that 
just eat potato chips. Yeah, um, that, that was me 10 years ago. Yeah. So again, like, I think this is with the health halo. So there can be a perception that everyone that's vegan or vegetarian is healthy. But um, I know, yeah, that, like there's a lot of foods that would fall into the, um, the not necessarily the, the occasional food bracket that are vegan that aren't necessarily going to give you the nutrients you want. Oreos, for example. Yeah, exactly. Vegan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So nothing wrong with an Oreo here and there, but it's not, it's not something you want all the time, and it's not, it's not something you want to be eating constantly all the time. Which I totally was ten years ago. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Next question for a shift worker: How do you avoid late night snack cravings? I mean, this this also goes for you know, like when you're working till eleven p.m. or when any of us are working till eleven p.m. Like, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it's, uh, yeah, common for, say, nurses and doctors who I've got a lot of friends in that in that bracket who are working till the early hours of the morning. And especially in some of those environments where there might be, um, yeah, boxes of chocolates, tins of, like, biscuit tins hanging around. And so when it comes to the food, if the food's in, in, the, in your eating because you're bored and it's just there... Um, that's where using using sort of like mental um, like mental rehearsal strategies, and it might be that saying like I'm not the person that eats biscuits at ten o'clock at night, and and reminding yourself. So if someone offers you, oh, would you like a biscuit? And you're like, no, I'm. I'm and so they're defining yourself by what you because if you you know if you have one, then you'll end up having five. Yep. So it's and then some of that comes to the if this then. So mm-hmm. if you know if I eat one biscuit, I'm going to eat the rest of the packet. Um, it's like thinking about what happens and the outcome and then changing the outcome so yeah it's like an alternative okay if if someone offers me a biscuit I'm going to say no and I'm going to go and get a glass of water instead or having Mm -hmm. a plan having a plan instead of what you what you don't want to do because it yeah I mean we're all we all like to deceive ourselves and be like oh I deserved it I've had such a rough day and and yeah like that might be like completely valid but I was gonna say totally true yeah exactly (laughs) but and it's not that that's a wrong thing but it's like those little 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 things or collectively might be what's holding you back from seeing a change and um and so like for for like sustainable say weight change or weight loss I'd be looking like you only want a deficit of like 200 calories like it's not much and but I think people oh no no no, I want more I want more but the problem when it's only that small you don't notice it and so if you don't notice it it's you're not gonna feel like you're missing out or feeling deprived Yeah. And are there any snacks like it, in my head, like a whey protein shake or something like that might be? Like- so, I mean, for me, I would say no to a whey protein shake. More because there's nothing in it. Like, I yeah. mean, there's no substance to it. So you, you drink it, you're still hungry or you're hungry five true, minutes later. True. So this is where for me, always would advise like in, in that sort of scenario where you want to feel fuller longer, like the whole food. So it's like, say like you could eat an orange over an orange juice, like the juice like gone where the orange like there's a cup you you could mm-hmm. eat this this glass might be three oranges to fill that glass yeah where if I gave you three oranges like you might get through the first one or and a half and then be like yeah okay. I'm good yeah yeah <laughs> exactly and so but um tearing it up with something that's got some protein in it or um some and it maybe a little bit of fat in there as well so rather than just having an, an apple it might be apple with I don't know something like peanut butter or something as well like that might be one or like if um if people are having like say crackers they might want have a couple of crackers with some hummus and maybe some celery or as well because then you're getting extra volume so for me mm-hmm. always adding extra adding veg into every meal that you possibly can it in, it makes you feel fuller because it's adding more food but it's totally. not really not really adding more calories or energy yeah yeah no that's a great one Awesome. Um, and then last question here was, as a parent, how do I tell if my junior elite racer is eating right? Oh, that's challenging. Oh, boy. <laughs> that, <laughs> is, that is challenging. That could be a whole other episode. But. Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, I haven't particularly worked with um, with uh, junior athletes, not for, not for a while. I worked with some junior women, junior female um, cyclists for a little, little while. Um, I think... When when it is your child, and I'm I'm not a parent, so I don't know what that's same, like. Same. Um, I think you you should you would probably have a good understanding of what is their normal normal patterns. Um, but probably if you start seeing them making big changes or 
all of a sudden be like I'm vegetarian I'm vegan or I'm not drinking dairy anymore um so particularly with uh, young girls they're the changes that we do tend to see that are more related to not eating enough um and that could be because they're um, feeling pressure from the, in their sport or from peers about their shape or their size, uh, or it might be that they're, they're, they're reading messages and feeling that, oh, I need to eliminate this. So like we were saying before about the elimination concept, um, if there's any um, signs where they're making huge changes and, and a food that they used to love, they all of a sudden stopped eating or their portion size seemed to be shrinking, um, uh, there'd be sort of signs I'd be saying okay maybe there's just something to sort of just keep an eye on and aware but it, yeah it's, it's not my area of expertise and it's probably a very um tricky area to to manage because especially um especially young girls but even even young boys as well um it it's a it's a time and a period where people are very sensitive to their food and to their weight and their bodies and so um try yeah be very thoughtful about your words of what you're using to talk about food or but yeah try not to put too much pressure on it as well I think that's that's exactly the right answer right it's it's real you know you could say all of the stuff about carbs or protein or vegetables or whatever but really what it comes down to especially at that age is just like make sure they're not making any dramatic changes or yeah. you know just yeah, be, be there for them, I think, yeah, is and, the and, most. And, and it all comes down to, like, at any age group, just having good, solid, like, baselines, like, making sure you're getting plenty of, like, vegetables as everyone everyone needs to – everyone can benefit from eating more veg. Yes, um, exactly. And I know there's like, the big plant-based push at the, mo- push at the moment, and, like, I'm – I mean, personally, I eat meat and dairy and everything as well, but um, I would have I would always say my, my diet is plant-based because – I eat predominantly plants um, yeah. and yes I eat other uh, foods as well but they're not the main bulk of my diet and um, so yeah everyone 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 benefits from having more veg. I think that's that's a perfect message to end on so you are in Girona but you also do a lot of teleconsulting so yes. how can people get in touch with you? Yeah definitely so you can visit my website which is Dietitian Without Borders. I love com. that. Yeah and um <laughs> So, yeah, that, that came about just because of my experience of sort of being all over the world for a long time. And, yeah, so I see people physically here in Girona, but I also see a, probably the majority of my clients, I see them remotely. Because, I mean, even if people are here for like a week or two, um, a lot of athletes, they're, they're racing all the time, they're travelling a lot. And so um, what I found is that by being able to see people regularly and a lot of it is just coaching them about how to make tweaks and changes in a sustainable way that they can then carry on for the rest of their life and so sometimes I might be working with someone for like two or three weeks others it might be six months depending on what their goal is or at the time and by having that flexibility to see them wherever they're at or whatever time zone that that they're at then I can support them best and it's not about me telling them what to do um, or what's right or wrong it's like helping them to make choices that sustain what they're able to do in the environment that they're in because um, yeah like here like I was just looking today on at all the plant-based milks in the supermarket and I was like oh wow there's only really one that's fortified and so just being able to sort of have practical suggestions relevant to the, the, the the place that they're currently living in that they can they can use then. Oh, that's awesome. And you're also on Instagram too. What's yep. your what's your handle? Instagram, I am Gemma Sampson Nutrition. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind the scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. Takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone and it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.